0: You can't be a country that's going to violently invade one of your neighbors, killing what's going to be thousands of civilians, children, women. And then on the other hand, you're some wonderful, good faith negotiating partner. These these two things just can't mix. You're listening to Code Red
1: with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red Podcast. I am Alan Roth, President of Secure America Now. Our special guest today is Victoria Coates, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor and Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Energy in the Trump Administration. Currently, she is Distinguished Fellow in Strategic Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Welcome, Victoria. I'm going to ask you to do what is possibly an impossible uh, task, but that is to get into the head of Vladimir Putin. What could he be thinking when he starts a war with a nation that is a pretty big country, has as many people as France, and has a very formidable civilization of its own. Um, What, what do you think his goals are for trying to um, do something, whatever he's, whatever his end objective is in Ukraine?
0: Well, I think Vladimir Putin's head is somewhere I don't want (laughs) to go. But I, 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 I think, there's a pretty good chance he miscalculated here. I was actually speaking with a, a colleague in the Gulf, in which, from a country that's you know trying to stay as neutral as possible in this, in this uh, crisis, I don't blame them. Uh, but they, and their view was very much that that this was a miscalculation. I think we can blame it as we can so many things on the abject surrender of Afghanistan over the summer, the apparent disarray of NATO following that because we didn't consult with our NATO partners on that mission, apparently before we pulled everybody out and they were left to scramble, uh, which wasn't the most polite thing we've ever done. And, you know, and I think Putin looking at the situation, given his nationalistic views on what the Russian Empire should be, and I actually don't think he's looking at this as the Soviet Union. I think he's looking at it more as an imperial Russian mm-hmm. rebuilding. And uh, that that he strongly believes Ukraine is his. He knows he basically walked into Crimea without firing a shot during the Obama administration. Uh, why would it be any different under a Biden administration? I, again, I, I don't fault his logic there. Uh, I think he faces enormous demographic and economic pressures within, Euro, uh, within Russia uh that that he is basically managing the decline at this point in terms of a declining economy that is so reliant on fossil fuels and they don't have a good uh sort of technology innovation base and they know it uh you know they're a gas station and they've got commodities that you know that's going to be a problem for us over the next couple of years as we isolate them i'm not i'm not putting it lightly but they're not going to be part of the information economy of the future uh, the way they're currently constructed. And I don't think with his policies, he can fix that. So he's got real problems. Uh, Ukraine can actually fix a lot of those problems in terms of additional resources, additional people. Uh, So I think, you know, his, his view was he could take it. So why not take it? Um, I think what probably has surprised him and where the miscalculation came in is in this extraordinary uh international condemnation from countries that generally haven't. And you know, I'm not a big fan of the United Nations, as I think I've made clear on this podcast, but you know, the having more than 140 countries vote to condemn Russia, 35 abstaining and only four voting, you know, affirmatively with Russia is you know that that's pretty bad in terms of of showing that that you know you you have the I hate to say this because it's mean to lepers but you have leper countries like Iran and North Korea and Venezuela voting with you uh, and everybody else is arrayed on the other side. It's you know that that's a pretty stark demonstration that that I think what you're hearing from the world is that we don't want World War Three. You know, enough enough of us. You know, had fathers and grandfathers that fought in the war, knew people who suffered through the war. Uh, you know, obviously those memories are very fresh still uh, in Israel. We don't want that again, and I think that's that's the very clear message that's that's coming coming through. And and he may well have have bitten off more than he can chew here.
1: Victoria, recently you wrote an article that drew much needed attention to the Biden administration's rush to conclude a nuclear deal with Iran. You argue that Russia is manipulating Biden into accepting a weak new Iran deal. Can you share with us how Russia is impacting our negotiations with Iran?
0: It's really the most remarkable thing, Alan. I was asked by a couple of different outlets to start looking at what looked like the end game for the Iran deal negotiations in Vienna. And the name that kept cropping up was Mikhail Leonov, who is the lead Russian negotiator, who's become something of a celebrity in diplomatic circles, I suppose, to paraphrase Mel Brooks, that's like being world famous in Poland. Uh, but he, he has an English language Twitter feed uh, with about 12,000 followers, all of whom are diplomats. And I think he has been using that Twitter feed and this celebrity to really manipulate events. And there was an episode in December when the Iranians th- threatened to walk away and Oleana was credited with getting everything back on track. And the relationship with his American counterparts has been described as courteous and productive, and then lo and behold, Putin goes into Ukraine, and suddenly, Oleanov is tweeting, you know, direct threats against the Germans about turning off energy and celebrating Putin's action. And it's pretty clear to anyone who's reading these events that the Russians were using the American dependence on their delegation in Vienna to shuttle back and forth with the Iranians to sort of pull the wool over the administration's eyes and make them think the Russians were actually productive partners on their top priority, which is getting back into a nuclear deal with Iran.
1: So we are in one, on one hand, we have President Biden Criticizing the Russians' activities or war against Ukraine, and on the other hand, we have a Russian ambassador being the intermediary with the Iranians and the Americans in coming to a nuclear deal. Is that one of the more bizarre episodes in the uh, international relations
0: <laughs> i mean it's you feel like you've gone through the looking glass because you have this situation where Putin has become an international pariah, and rightly so. You know, we've seen this extraordinary organic movement over the last two weeks to just isolate Russia. You know, in an extraordinary episode, Shell, the, the oil major, bought a very cheap Russian uh, energy cargo on on march 4th and the international outcry was such that they apologized uh today and said they're, they're not going to do it again um, you know and that is that is you know, moral pressure being brought to bear on these companies obviously they're private companies they can do what they want but they can read you know they can read the public mood pretty clearly and people don't want that stuff in their in their tanks and that this is an amazing thing to happen to putin but at the same time you have the american administration cuddling up to these guys in vienna and treating them as like partners for peace it just it makes no sense you can't be a country that's going to violently invade one of your neighbors killing it's going to be thousands of civilians children women and then on the other hand you're some wonderful good faith negotiating partner these these two things just can't mix and you know that's that's the kerfuffle the administration has gotten themselves into.
1: There was a video making the rounds of the Russian ambassador in Vienna talking about how he has gotten concessions from the United States that the Iranians had never imagined was possible as they moved towards a deal. Can you shed any light on what he might be talking about here? What do you know that is the insides of this deal? Or what are the components of this deal?
0: Well, you, you might be surprised to learn that the current administration doesn't confide in me very much uh, about their Iran policy. And I will say it's, it's amazing the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians know what's in this deal. But the administration has very carefully kept it secret from the American people and the U.S. Congress, both of whom I think have a pretty strong stake in it, not to mention our allies in the Middle East, such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, who are all taking direct fire, both from the Iranians themselves and from their proxies. So that's, that's a nice state of affairs in and of itself. I'm very familiar with the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, what President Trump called the worst deal of all time, the Iran nuclear deal. That deal contained sweeping sanctions relief for the Iranians in the financial uh, energy and transportation sectors from both the United States and the European Union, because that was the multilateral sanctions framework. It also gave Russia a lead role uh, in managing the, uh, then what was going to be the illicit Iranian nuclear program. What the Olyanov, uh interview that was being, uh, that was published by the Free Beacon yesterday, what that indicates is whatever we're going into now is considerably worse. And one of the things that was quite disturbing uh, over the weekend was the Russian suggestion from Foreign Minister Lavrov that there is some kind of international economic cooperation baked into this thing. And that the Russians were going to want guarantees that any sanctions from um, Ukraine would not in any way impede that cooperation. So we could be looking at a situation where the Russians have, you know, w- with the Iranians, basically tricked the Americans into agreeing to this I assume from the Iranian perspective, this would be a mechanism that would ensure ongoing cooperation beyond an American administration, because that's what they're scared of, that we pull out of it again. Uh, From the Russian standpoint, that's insurance against Ukraine sanctions. So you can see how they, you know, have potentially exploited this process.
1: During the Trump administration, your portfolio included uh, the Middle East, and uh, you have continued with uh, working with uh, contacts um, in the Middle East. And can you tell us what is their overall reaction to uh, America re-engaging in a nuclear deal with Iran?
0: They're they're pretty appalled, uh, and you know I'll I'll never forget I was actually with you, Alan, on one of my first trips to the Middle East a few years ago. I don't want to date us, uh, but going to Israel, and have spent a lot of time in the region since then. Um, you know I think the, the there is a feeling that that one of the cardinal sins of the original deal, which I just alluded to, which is the fact that no one from the region besides the Iranians was at the table that was not fixed they are enormously concerned by the considerable uptick in iranian proxy violence we've been seeing attacks directly on uae as well as saudi uh out of yemen uh, by the houthi who are apparently no longer terrorists but they keep doing these terrorists things which is confusing um and you have the catastrophic Biden energy uh, policies, which have been to demonize our fellow uh, energy-producing nations in the Gulf for fossil fuels. But now having to beg them for fossil fuels, but the relationships are so frayed. You know they don't have no trust in the administration, and you know no incentive to be forward leaning in you know assisting the United States when when we ask for it. So it's a it's a very unsettled, frightening state of affairs. And you know, a lot of folks in Washington like to talk about how we have to focus on China. I strongly agree with that, that that China demands our urgent attention. But as Ukraine shows, that doesn't mean we get to pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist. And you know, it, my concern is, is that, you know, we have the Ukraine crisis, we have concerns with China, we're not paying attention to the Middle East, uh, which has a tendency to flare up when when not properly attended to. So it's a it's very worrisome state of affairs.
1: Uh, in the original Iran deal that the Obama administration concluded with Iran, and in the current deal, which has not been concluded yet, um, Iran would be coming to, at the end of the deal, would be able to legally uh, attain or develop nuclear weapons. Is that correct?
0: There's, There's certainly nothing that would stop them from the kind of enrichment that would be necessary to develop you know, domestically a nuclear weapon. Those those sunsets all occur. My understanding is that they are not extended in the New Deal. So that's all going to happen in the next couple of years. Because we're already seven years out from the original deal. And those sunsets were 10, 12 years, uh, which, which seemed like an eternity seven years ago. Now it's now it's a little bit a little bit frightening uh, in terms of the shortness of the timeline. And You know, that's the great fallacy of this deal, which the administration says is the only thing standing between us and an Iranian nuclear weapon. Well, that means there isn't anything standing between us and an Iranian nuclear weapon because the deal, you know, the deal is meaningless. And, you know, one thing we know now that we did not know in 2015 is that the Iranian insistence that they had never had an intention to get a nuclear weapon, uh, and even if they have had that intention, it was maybe in 2002, and for sure they didn't, maybe 1994, and for sure they didn't have it anymore. But we know, even while they were, you know, passing those, those nice words to John Kerry in Vienna seven years ago, they were hoarding the, the plans for nuclear weapons in that nuclear archive in Tehran that the Israelis revealed three years, three, four years ago. And... So so they were lying. (laughs) They did want a nuclear weapon. They were keeping at considerable expense, detailed records of how to make one. And, you know, why would we believe them now that they are not just going to sit there for three years, grow fat on the money they're going to make off of uh, selling us exorbitantly priced oil because we won't pump our own. And, you know, when they're ready, test.
1: Would you be in favor of any deal that's concluded uh, with Iran uh, be uh, directed and reviewed and voted on by the United States Senate? Last time that did not happen. No, and you
0: know, I it, it's hard to pinpoint the 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 truly worst failing of the original nuclear deal but one of the truly awful things about it was it was never put in front of the congress you can do it two different ways uh for those who want to make a deal legally binding uh and i mean i would make this point to to the iranians who are asking for assurances there's a perfectly easy way to get an assurance that a deal is binding and that is to pass it through the united states senate with a two-thirds vote as a treaty you could also if you prefer pass it through both uh Houses of Congress as a law and which then would have to be repealed by the Congress, not by you know a successive administration, and so would be binding on a future president. They refused to do that in 2015, uh, it, opting instead to go through the United Nations Security Council, which last time I looked I was not binding US law. Uh, and that's what they're proposing to do again. I am not uh, a strong proponent of the ANARA, uh, which is the secondary review uh, and approval mechanism that was developed, uh, corp- it was called Kirk or Cardin after the senators that, uh, that sponsored it. That I think is not an effective mechanism. I think the, the, that the American people and the Congress need to insist on having this thing passed as a treaty if they want it to be worth the paper it's written on.
1: What do you think is motivating the Biden administration, which seems hell bent on concluding this deal? How does this benefit the United States of America?
0: Oh, that's that's a tough one for me, Alan, because I I, I just I can't see how this is possibly a good idea. My. My best guess is the JCPOA was a monument, uh, very similar to the Paris Climate Accords, to a globalized foreign policy for the United States, that, that these were international agreements. Uh, you know, the, Even the P5 plus one, you know, whatever that means is weird uh, because it includes the Germans, the French, and the Brits, but then also included an EU representative. So in a way, the Europeans were double tapping. Uh, but but getting to these international accords that are then implemented through the United Nations, I think for the Obama and now the Biden administrations, which are very similar, this is kind of an article of faith of how we were going to get to a more peaceful planet. And you know, part of what underpinned that was the belief that uh, Iran could be brought into the, uh, the sort of sphere of civilized nations and that this would cause peace in the Middle East. Now, what the Trump administration inconveniently demonstrated was that what actually brought peace to the Middle East was very aggressively isolating Iran and embracing our traditional partners and allies being Israel and the Gulf nations, which brought them together. And we had, you know, we had peace deals for the first time in the Middle East in a quarter century. And so, you know, we felt we really handed the incoming administration quite a strong position in the region both because of the Abraham Accords and then also because of the extraordinary leverage they had on Iran. And I know at least one gulf leader actually said to the incoming administration in, in January of last year, you know, if you want to go back into some sort of deal, this is your moment because you have so much leverage. And what did they do? They immediately started offering concessions, you know, taking the Houthi off the foreign terrorist organization list, agreeing to this bizarre situation in Vienna whereby the Iranians could refuse to meet directly with the Americans and they'd work through the Russians. And you know, here we are at a, at a terrible deal, worse than the original. Uh, certainly not the stronger, longer deal we were promised.
1: The original deal included a plane load of money, gold, um, various payoffs to the Iranian regime, which then made its way into. Iran's uh, terrorist activities across the globe. Do you foresee a similar component to this deal, knowing that you don't have inside information, but knowing the Iranians, do you think that they would conclude a deal without a great deal of American taxpayer dollars coming into their pockets?
0: No, I mean they're not stupid, and they know the administration is for it. Uh, they dress these things up as, oh, you know, this is money that the United States was holding in escrow from before the Islamic Revolution. Well, I would say they forfeited all that money. Uh, that that they they've committed enough terrorist atrocities against the United States and our and our allies that maybe that money should go to the victims of of their malfeasance and not line the pockets of the ayatollah uh and you if you do because we we had a lot of these these metrics uh in the previous administration there was a direct corollary it was almost dollar for dollar of the money they got both from the cash settlement and then from the sanctions relief and what they poured into uh their participation in terrorism and you know, they, none of it went to the Iranian people who are in desperate need of everything from clean air and water to food to medical supplies. You know that beautiful country, which should be you know wealthy and uh, prosperous and peaceful and sophisticated, all these good things, is instead in just a terrible mess because the leadership won't do anything to help improve their own people's lives and. You know, one of the great tragedies of the Obama administration, from from my perspective, was the decision not to support the Iranian people in 2009, when there was the possibility uh, of a of a popular uprising and a change in in leadership, and they made the deliberate decision not to support it uh, because they thought they could come to a deal with with the current crowd, which is which is still there, not surprisingly. So, you know, it's it's just it's, it's so wrongheaded in my view. Uh, I remember John Kerry coming out in 2015 and giving this interview to CBS in which he said that the Iranians were going to use these resources to cure cancer, that, that their licit nuclear program was now going to be focused on curing cancer. And that's where they were going to put their resources. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, And I don't think it's going to happen this year either.
1: The uh, switching gears or switching of perspective in terms of another hot spot um, uh, on the international scene is uh, Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine. And one of the uh, things that has occurred because of the war that Russia instigated and triggered is uh, a lot of conversation about NATO. And uh, leading up to Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine, there was quite a bit of talk about will Ukraine uh, be accepted into NATO? um, And that that might have been one of the motivating factors for Putin's attack, which, quite frankly, there is no excuse for his attack on Ukraine. NATO has made it absolutely clear that Ukraine is not prepared at this time or in the foreseeable future to become a part of NATO, but yet it refused to close the door on Ukraine. Um, in saying no, Ukraine, at least for a decade, would not. Be a part of NATO. How do you see the future of NATO um, in this part of the world, or uh, what is its role? Uh, You know, uh, the Ukrainian president is challenging NATO to create a no fly zone, and NATO is saying no, which I don't necessarily disagree with. Do you see a future for NATO um, uh, in, in American foreign policy, meaning playing a central role as it did during the Cold War?
0: Well, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, you know, I certainly could see a very important role for NATO going forward, but I think the next two months are going to be critical for that. Uh, to get to get back to what you're talking about, about Putin's excuse, because it is just that for going into Ukraine, there was no chance of Ukraine joining NATO for any point in the foreseeable future, because you have to have a unanimous vote from all, I think, currently 29 countries that are part of NATO to accept Ukraine's bid for membership. And Ukraine needs to fit or, uh, hit certain metrics and benchmarks, which they are in no position to hit right now. So there was no chance of Ukraine going into NATO. This is made up by Putin, who wanted an excuse, as you said, to go into to Ukraine. And so he wants to pay NATO a defensive alliance that has never attacked anything as the aggressor. He's attacked lots of things. NATO has attacked nothing, but suddenly NATO's the aggressor? It makes no sense. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot in the United States, or a number of people in the United States who have bought into this uh, you know, Putin lie, hook, line, and sinker, and see him as the victimized party. And I think that's deeply unfortunate. Uh, fortunately, polling shows that's not a, a widespread, uh, a widespread view. I think I saw one yesterday that had support for Ukraine at about eighty percent, but they tend to be very vocal. So I think that's that's really a shame. Uh, but in terms of NATO going forward, I think we have to be extremely clear. Uh, that that it, we we will both support Ukraine robustly, both as the United States and NATO. I happen not to be a great fan of no-fly zones. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the ones in northern and southern Iraq. And while they did keep Saddam in something of a box, they also you know, were a tremendous risk to the United States and our pilots. And Uh, you know Saddam was not a nuclear superpower at that point. And so, you know, I think the idea of a no-fly zone is certainly a very fraught one. It would have to be a decision taken very soberly and in you know serious discussion with our, our NATO allies about how that would work. But I also wouldn't take it off the table. You know, why should I tell Putin what I will or will not do? There seems to be absolutely no limits on his behavior. You know, he's put his nuclear weapons on alert, you know, is indiscriminately shelling civilians and and we're the ones who are supposed to be circumspect. Uh, you know, I, I think, think we, we should keep, you know, while he's keeping all his options on the table, we have to keep all our options on the table. And as I said, I don't favor it, but it is an option. And I certainly don't want to be going to the president of the United States and saying, oh, sorry, you can't do that because it might upset the Russians. Sure, I can do it. I don't, might not want to do it or it might not be a good decision, but to say that we're not, you know, it's, it's somehow forbidden, makes no sense to me as a policymaker.
1: You know, the Biden administration uh, does frequently take off the table, um, potential tools that we could use in foreign policy. Um, they just voluntarily um, uh, give the other side the um, the impression that, you know, there's no chance in hell we're going to ever use, whether it's a no-fly zone or introducing troops into um, a particular situation. Well, Victoria Coates, I want to thank you for sharing your Insightful views on these um, burning, actually international matters. Um, I want to invite you to come back on our podcast uh, any time that you um, that you would like to to um, again help us understand what is going on in the world and what is. Uh, the Biden administration up to.
0: Well, it'll it'll always be a pleasure, Alan. I appreciate you having me on. Hopefully, next time I've had some better news. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I, you know, I feel like Cassandra. I just
1: kind of. <laughs> we don't hold <laughs> you <laughs> responsible. Yeah. i um, a litany of woes. <laughs> yes. Well, in any event, thank you very much, and um, uh, we'll see you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.